Let's begin with prayer this evening. Our Father in heaven, we ask that thou would enlighten our minds as we open thy word, that thou would give to us of thy spirit to guide and lead us into thy truth. Lord, we only scratch the surface of all that is in thy word, but open our minds and our hearts that we, Lord, may by thy spirit be able to apply and understand even uh, to greater depths uh, in that which thou hast revealed. Lord, we commit this time to thee ask that thou would cleanse us of our sins as we approach thee in thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text this evening is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. John 13, 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. In John's Gospel, we have now moved uh, to a very critical part of the Gospel presented here. We've moved from the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, which ended in chapter 12, his public ministry, Now we have entered into his more private ministry and we've come to the final hours of Christ's life before his crucifixion. And who does he want to spend time with? In his final hours, he wants to spend time with his own disciples. This is is a very important time And in the next several chapters, even before the arrest of the Lord Jesus in chapter 18, but in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, uh, there is, again, this time that he is spending uh, with his disciples and communing with them, uh, showing to them, again, his love for them to the very end. So let's begin with verse 1, John 13, 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Here we see that the Lord Jesus was crucified at the time of the Jewish Passover by God's design, not accidentally, because the Passover lamb that was offered at that time pointed to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. There was probably no feast uh, that had as many people gathered in Jerusalem, millions of people gathered uh, in Jerusalem at this time. Jews from not only Jerusalem, not only Judea, uh, Samaria, um, if there were Jews in Samaria, uh, Galilee, to all over the world, the known world at that time would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Those multitude of Jews that were come from afar would then return to their homes after the Passover and so many of them being gathered together at that time, Lord knew that they would have heard of, they would have known about the events that happened at that time, namely that he who many believed was the Messiah was crucified between two thieves. That he, was, that he was buried and that he was raised the third day. Many, the report, again, even if many did not see Jesus alive at that time, the report was no doubt spreading throughout Jerusalem as to all of these events. And these events then were taken uh, throughout the Roman Empire at that time as far as what was uh, being uh, reported regarding Jesus. The majority, no doubt, disbelieved uh, his substitutionary death uh, and disbelieved uh, his bodily resurrection, probably listening more to the, the lies of the, of the Pharisees that his disciples stole his body from the tomb rather than the fact that he was raised from the dead. But nevertheless, they became uh, witnesses. They became a means of spreading the news about those events throughout much of the Roman world. Now, in verse 1, says that when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. So Jesus knew God's calendar. Jesus knew his, God's schedule for his suffering for his beloved elect. This wasn't coming upon Jesus uh, by way of some surprise. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew the time was now upon him. 
that he was about to be offered as that sacrifice for God's people. Jesus knew also and had some idea, even though obviously not having yet experienced it, but he knew that this was going to be uh, an unimaginable time of anguish and torment that he was about to undergo and suffer. But knowing what he did know, he didn't run the other direction. He didn't flee, as we'll see even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was praying and uh, left his three disciples there to pray for him, and he went on and prayed. And Judas and the multitude of soldiers that came to arrest him, uh, he didn't run the other direction. He went out to meet them. And so why did he do that? Well, he did so out of love. That's what it says here. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. That was them, those disciples, but that's also us. Having loved them, having loved us to the end. Herein is given, I think, the motivation that moved Jesus to continue uh, to move forward in this plan though it meant more suffering than any man ever did suffer or since has suffered in body and especially in soul. First and foremost, the motivation that moved Jesus was because it was the will of God. Because it was the realization of a covenant that was made with the Father in all eternity. That Jesus would sacrifice his life for his elect. And second, he was moved, again as it says here, out of love for those given to him by the Father to save. Remember back in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, these words of the Lord Jesus. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now notice the order here. Those who are given by the Father to the Son to save will come to him, will believe in him. doesn't say that the Father gave them to the Son after they came to him, after they believed in him. They were given to the Son from all eternity. And the Father having given them to the Son to save, they in time came to him. They believed in him. And then it continues, And him, Jesus says, that cometh to me, that is the one who comes and believes in me, I will in no wise cast out. He speaks very strongly here in this uh, verse, it, it is not simply a single negative, but a double negative. The strongest way of negating something that is said. 
For I came down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. So all that the Father gave to the Son, even from all eternity, the Son went to the cross, he paid the debt of their sin, the guilt and the punishment of their sin, and he promises that he'll not lose any of them, and he promises that he will raise them all up at the last day in that glorious resurrection, that final resurrection. So Jesus loved them and loved us to the very end, to the end of his life on earth. In spite of their sins, in spite of their weaknesses, and the New Testament is, is not silent, it doesn't hide or conceal the sins and the weaknesses of Christ's disciples. It doesn't hide their immaturity. Jesus knew the worst about these men, and yet he loved them to the very end. Having loved them to the very end of his earthly life, he will love them for all eternity. Nothing will be able to separate them from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No, no, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. For Paul says in Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 6 through 10, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the righteous. He died for the ungodly. That's because all of us are ungodly by nature. None of us has, again, uh, the, the righteousness that God requires in order to be saved. Otherwise, Jesus didn't need to come. Jesus didn't need to offer his life a sacrifice if there were those who were righteous and didn't need that sacrifice. But all of us need that sacrifice. And he came to die. Um, and he died for the ungodly. Verse 7 of Romans 5, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man should some would even dare to die. What's the difference between a righteous man and a good man? Well, a righteous man says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. In other words, a righteous man is just, again, one who, who outwardly uh, follows the law. But even for that kind of a person, Paul says, one would hardly die for that person. But perhaps, he says, for a good man, a good man is not only outwardly righteous, but he also shows you know, mercy, he shows kindness, so he even goes beyond just the righteous. He says, perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die for a good man, for a righteous man, but 
Is that who God died for, or who Christ died for? But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we weren't righteous, we weren't good in God's sight. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In verse 10, for if when we were enemies, notice, not as friends, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So here the Lord Jesus, as we begin chapter 13, verse 1, he desires to spend the last hours of his life uh, with his own, whom he loved to the very end. Here Jesus is, I think, showing to us uh, what love is all about. Love, true biblical love, uh, as expressed by Jesus, desires to be with the one that is loved. That's why Jesus spent that time with his disciples. It says he loved them to the end. And what did he do? He spent time with them. And you know, this is what Jesus does and why we should consider our worship, whether our private worship, our family worship, our public worship, to be one of the best times that we spend in the course of our week. Because Jesus comes in our time of worship to spend time with us. Just as he spent time with the disciples. Let me ask you, if you had been alive at that time, just before Jesus died, and he invited you to come to a meal and to spend time with him, would you reject him? Would you say, no, I'm too busy, Jesus. I don't have time for you. Um, I think that if we are true Christians, it would be the desire of our heart to be around that table with the Lord Jesus. To learn of him, to hear him speak and teach, uh, to... Um, you know, ask questions, but to fellowship and commune with him, to pour out our hearts to him. But that's what we do. If that would be our attitude, if he were to invite us at that time, why do we reject him when he invites us to spend time with him every day? Why do we push him aside? At the end of the day, when we have family worship, why do we not come prepared on the Lord's Day to worship Him, to commune with Him together as God's people? Verse 2, John 13, 2. 
And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's helpful to understand that at the time of the Passover meal, um, and that evening that they partook of the Passover meal, there were actually uh, two meals that were uh, eaten. The first was the Passover, which was a sacramental meal from the Old Testament. It wasn't a meal to satisfy their hunger, uh, but rather it was a sacramental. It was a meal that they were to celebrate annually, and all of the, the males, because it, it, it specifically states in the Old Testament that only those who are circumcised, so only males, were permitted to partake of that particular sacramental meal, just as only males were circumcised. And so um, that was the first meal, uh, was uh, the Passover on that evening. And uh, not only um, do we learn uh, that males were to uh, alone be brought to the sacramental meal of the Passover, but at what age were they to be brought? I think it, it's helpful uh, as we look at Luke chapter 2 in the life of Jesus himself, at what age did he go to Jerusalem at the Passover for the first time? Luke 2, verses 41 through 47. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he speaking of Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So here is Jesus <clears throat> going with his parents, apparently for the first time, to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. In the 13th year of a male child, that was when he had his bar mitzvah, he became a son of the law. So Jesus going for the first time at the age of 12, was to be examined. He was to be examined, and uh, I submit to you, his examination is what we see happening there, 
when he is at the temple and he is asking questions and he's being asked questions and he's speaking, he's, he's interacting with the doctors, the teachers uh, of, the, uh, of the temple. Uh, those who were most knowledgeable and those who instructed. And so he's, be, he's going through an examination process in preparation for uh, his partaking of the Passover the following year. It's, very, it's not incidental or accidental that it mentions that age, 12 years of age, that that's when he went with his parents to the to Jerusalem at the Passover. So again, I think that uh, talking about, back to John 13, talking about the Passover, and again, who uh, did partake of that Passover meal, which was a sacramental meal. So the, that's the first meal. The second meal was an, an ordinary common meal. Uh, that meal was intended to satisfy the hunger of those who were there, and not only the men, but the whole family would join in in that particular meal. Uh, later on, after the sacramental meal was celebrated. On this particular evening, there's a third meal that's introduced, the Lord's Supper is introduced after the Passover meal, then the common meal, and then the Lord introduces and institutes the Lord's Supper for the first time. So there are three meals, actually. Two sacramental meals, the Passover, the Lord's Supper, and in between the common meal. Very telling that the Lord Jesus the night that he was betrayed, basically celebrates the Passover for the last time, based, pointing to the fact that he was the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. And so the Passover was coming to an end. But he doesn't leave his church without a sacramental meal. He introduces the Lord's Supper as that sacramental meal that is to be perpetuated uh, throughout the remainder of time until the Lord Jesus returns. Here it says that Satan had put in the heart of Judas uh, to betray Jesus. So that had already occurred Satan had suggested the idea to Judas of betraying the Lord Jesus. One might ask, why? Well, I think that uh, uh, Judas um, was a mercenary. He was only going to follow Jesus as long as Jesus um, spoke of uh, taking the throne ascending to the throne of Jerusalem and overcoming the Romans. When it appeared to Judas that that was not going to be the case, that Judas or that Jesus was going to 
not he'd been offered. Uh, you know, he had entered into Jerusalem earlier that week to the acclaim of the multitudes, proclaiming Hosanna uh, to the highest uh, son of David, uh, declaring that he was the Messiah. But he, he didn't ascend to the throne. And as a matter of fact, during that week, he spoke to his disciples about his death that was about to come, rather than him ascending to some throne, political throne, to overthrow the Romans. And so it, it would seem that Judas, being the mercenary that he was, said, uh, I don't have time for this kind of a Jesus. Uh, I wonder if I can make some money off of betraying him because he knew that the Jewish leaders were looking for an opportunity uh, to destroy Jesus. And so, again, it says Satan made this suggestion to Judas. Judas then acted upon the suggestion. And in fact, in Matthew 26, 14, even before this meal... Uh, the Passover meal in John 13 that Jesus is, is celebrating. In Matthew 26, 14, we read, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him, that is, deliver Jesus, in, unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. And then in Matthew's Gospel, um, the feast of Passover follows uh, right after that, which is what we're talking about in John 13. So just before this, this Passover meal, Judas had already arranged uh, with the Jewish leaders uh, to betray the Lord Jesus. Judas was never a true believer. He was never uh, regenerate, born again. Jesus uh, makes that very clear in John 6, verse 64, concerning Judas. John 6, 64, Jesus says, But there are some of you that believe not. He's speaking to uh, his disciples. For Jesus knew, it says in John 6, 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, as Jesus said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. No one can believe unless God gives them the faith to believe. Verse 66, John 6, 66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the, that Christ, 
that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So why did Jesus, if this is the case, why did Jesus uh, choose Judas to be an apostle from the very beginning? He was never a believer. If he, as he says, he was a devil from the beginning. Um, why did he choose him? Well, let me give you two responses. Uh, one uh, is an encouragement. The second is a warning. The encouragement is that uh, Jesus chose Judas in order to fulfill prophecy. That's a comfort. That's an encouragement to us about the, the truthfulness, the veracity of God's word. That all that is prophesied concerning Jesus in the Old Testament is realized. Even the one who would betray him. So we see later on, we'll come to this verse later on in John 13, but notice verse 18, John 13 18. Jesus says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. That's speaking of Judas, and, and that was a prophecy back in Psalm 41 9 uh, and so this was Jesus is saying this prophecy back in Psalm 41 9 is being fulfilled in Judas who is betraying me and who is turning me over who has plotted with the with the religious leaders uh, to bring about my arrest my suffering my the crucifixion suffering for God's people but this is done for our encouragement that the prophecy is made the word of God is faithful the word of God is true um, and we see even in that respect even though again it's not something that we look at and uh, and we say well it's good that Judas betrayed Jesus in order to fulfill prophecy no, uh, it was a w wicked and evil thing that J Judas did. But even that wicked and evil event was prophesied to come to pass in the Old Testament. You see, there are many things that are prophesied in the Old Testament about the New Testament that are not necessarily uh, things that we would consider good and righteous and holy. For example, again, uh, the, the turning against Jesus by the Jews. Um, they're uh, hating and despising him in Isaiah 50, uh, 53. Um, this is, again, a part of uh, the Old Testament. Many things prophesied are uh, very encouraging, very uh, hopeful, very blessed, 
but again, uh, not all things. This, however, was included in a prophecy. So we can be encouraged from the aspect of God's word always comes to pass. It's faithful, it's true. We can put our confidence in God's word. A second a reason why Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle as a warning, and that is to reveal that even church officers and church members that profess Christ may outwardly do things in his name and yet never be saved. How close can you get to Jesus than to be an apostle and to be a devil, to be an unbeliever. This should be, again, used by us to, to examine our hearts. You know, are we simply pretending? Are we simply going through the motions or do we trust in Jesus? Uh, do we follow him because we love him? and want to obey him. Obviously, that was not true of Judas. He had a certain reason for following Christ. He wanted to be amongst those whom Jesus would appoint after he became king from Jerusalem. He wanted to be one of those chief rulers along with Jesus. That was his motivation. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 in this regard. Very sobering. But it's, these are the words of Jesus. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Judas did all of those things. Uh, he, he received the same abilities and gifts that the other 11 apostles received, and yet he never believed and trusted in Jesus. Again, Sober warning for us all to uh, examine our own hearts before the Lord, not to hide things from God, uh, but rather to, uh, to be humbled by these words and to walk in humility before him, not in pride. John 13.3, the next verse. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. It would seem that these words were intended by John, the apostle, uh, to make it very clear that Jesus knew, uh, again, the amazing heights from which he came and the depths to which he went. In other words, 
There never has been anyone who started as high in glory as Jesus to go as far down to humble himself as did Jesus. No one. The Lord of glory becomes a human, takes on and assumes to himself a human nature and he becomes a suffering servant. In some sense, because the sins of all of his people, the guilt of their sin, the condemnation of their sin was placed to his account and he was judged by the Father for all of those, his people. He was, we could say, in that sense, judged as the greatest criminal that ever lived. Not that he himself was a criminal, but he was judged as the greatest criminal because he took upon himself all of our sins and suffered and died. Verse 4, John 13, 4. He, this is speaking of Jesus, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. So Jesus, at this point, whether this occurred after the Passover meal or after the common meal, uh, not real clear from the Gospel of John, but it just says after supper, so which supper uh, it was, uh, is not made um, absolutely clear, but nevertheless, he arises and he takes upon himself, lays aside his, his outer garments um, and has the inner garment on. He binds up the loose parts of it because he's going to be kneeling. And so he binds up the, the loose garments uh, at that point and um, in order uh, to wash the feet of his disciples, as we will see. <clears throat> At that time, when uh, one was invited uh, to a meal uh, by a neighbor, a friend, uh, an associate, it was often the job of lowly servants uh, to wash the hot, dusty feet of the guests that were invited to this meal. And uh, because uh, they didn't have shoes, they had sandals. The feet uh, often were, again, uh, during hot days. Um, you know, when your feet are cool, you know how refreshing that is when, you're, when you know, your, your feet are very hot, uh, how that also affects the rest of your body. And so one of the things that a host would do for his guests would have his uh, one of his servants as the guest came in to uh, his home to sit and to have a basin of water and to wash the feet to cool the feet off at that particular time 
It was not the master of the house, the host of the house that uh, would do so, but was a, a servant that did so. That's the very point that Jesus is making here. His whole life, though he was the master, his whole life was one of service. His whole life was one of giving of himself. Even though he was the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the creator of the very ones whose feet he was about to wash. You see, this tells us something about we who, in various capacities, lead. Those of us who lead should not view ourselves as those to be waited upon by others, but rather, following the example of the Lord Jesus, we should view ourselves as being the greatest servants of all. You see, here is a view of leadership that is completely contrary to the leadership that we find in the world. Christ's leadership, whether it's in the home, in the church, at work, in a nation, Christ's leadership is one of loving service, giving of oneself. Giving, 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 not taking, taking, and taking. That's the view of Christ's leadership. And I dare say, it's that kind of leadership that works in such a way as to cause those who are being led to say, I want to follow that man because of that loving leadership. I want to be a follower. It's that kind of loving leadership that basically strips away from those who are being led the desire to uh, lord it over. Not that it's impossible that those who even have that kind of leadership would want to lord it over because we are sinners. But yet that's the the kind of leadership that is more likely to have an effect on the hearts of those who are led, to humble the hearts of those who are led when they see that kind of loving leadership. It's hard not to want to follow someone who loves as Jesus loves. We want to follow Jesus as we grow in our understanding of him and his love for us, and what he has accomplished for us, does that make us, if we truly believe in him, does that make us want to run away from him? Or does it make us want to follow him? That's the kind of loving leadership that the Lord would have us who are men to exercise in the home, in the church, at work, and again, in any place of leadership. You see, this kind of leadership is not clinging to our rights to be served by those around us. It's not clinging to those rights. You know, I'm the leader. 
I'm the husband, I'm the father, I'm the pastor, I'm the boss on the job. It's not saying, you know, uh, demanding and saying, you, you have to do this because I am, you know, in charge here. Again, we, if that's what we have to do in order to, in our own minds, we have to demand that then I submit to you that, in a sense, um, we've kind of already lost the battle. Because that is something, when we, I believe, as leaders are leading as Jesus led, that there will be a willingness on the part of those being led. Jesus laid aside his rights, heavenly glory, to come and to suffer. He became the servant of all. You see, that's what leadership is about. It's not about pride. It's about humility. That's the kind of leadership that we will want to follow willingly and we will not probably want to follow the kind of leadership where we are beaten into submission. But we will want to follow where there is loving leadership, loving service. And yet, even after this amazing example of humility and service, after the in that very evening, after Jesus has washed their feet, then he institutes the Lord's Supper that same evening. They are, the disciples are arguing among themselves who will be the greatest. That's, again, that's where we are as, as sinners. Jesus can say it, he can show it to us by way of service, and what do we do? But Jesus, I want to be the greatest. I want to be master and lord. I don't want to be a servant. Again, this is, this is a, the, such a classic uh, portrayal of our own sin. And uh, not only of the disciples at that time, but of ourselves as well. But oh, the patience and long-suffering of Jesus, even at that time. He doesn't kick them out and say, you're not a disciple anymore. You know, didn't you just see what I did? Didn't you hear what I said? His patience and long-suffering with fallen and weak believers is absolutely amazing. It's, it's, again, one of those things that draws us unto the Lord Jesus. If he were not patient and long-suffering with us, none of us would still be alive. None of us would be saved. None of us. How we should likewise, therefore, seek and endeavor and plead with the Lord to help us to be more and more patient and long-suffering with one another. And then finally, verse 5, John 13, 5. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them 
with the towel wherewith he was girded. One can only imagine the astonishment of the disciples as Jesus, the Lord, the Master, began to wash their feet. As we will see in the next few verses in an upcoming Bible study, Peter, he, he very seriously objects to Jesus washing his feet, and we'll see that interaction between Peter and the Lord Jesus that occurs. So I won't, I won't go there t- tonight. We'll get there, uh, God willing, uh, next Bible study. So we know that Peter objects, but think about this for a moment. Satan had already suggested to Judas to betray Christ. He had already gone out and made plans and conspired with the Jewish religious leaders to betray Christ. Judas was present at this particular point of the evening and Jesus washes the feet of Judas. He washes the feet of the very one who lied about him, who betrayed him, who was a mercenary and turned against him. Jesus knew all of these things about Judas. It wasn't, again, something he was unaware of. But he knelt at the feet of Judas and wash his feet. No doubt pouring salt into the wound of Judas. Judas knew what he had already done, what he had already plotted and planned and already received 30 pieces of silver in payment to betray Jesus. And here Jesus is washing his feet as a lowly servant. May the Lord, as we close tonight, may the Lord grant us mercy to wash the feet of and to show mercy to those who likewise betray us. Those who speak evil of us. Those who lie unto about us. You know, it had been very easy for Jesus to simply skip over Judas. (laughs) You know, do the other apostles' feet, just skip over Judas. It had been very easy because of what Jesus knew and what Judas knew. And Judas would have known why he skipped over his feet and washed the other's feet. It had been very easy to do so, but he didn't. He did not refuse even to wash the feet of his betrayer. And why did he do so? Again, he was even extending mercy to Judas at that point. Mercy to his betrayer and washing his feet. He was setting an example. Jesus was setting an example for us all to walk in his steps. Not to cling to our rights, as Jesus didn't cling to his rights, but rather to lay our rights aside in order to even 
show mercy to and serve our betrayers. This is how Jesus, I submit to you, uses us in our relationships, in our families, between husbands and wives and parents and children. It's how the Lord Jesus uses us in our church and our church families. This is how the Lord Jesus uses us at work with those who may even call themselves our enemies. God have mercy upon us all that we might walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, our beloved Jesus. He who is Lord and Master and made himself the servant of all. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise and glorify our Lord Jesus. He who is exalted to thy right hand and sits upon a throne at thy right hand as sovereign Lord over all. How we praise thee that even the wounds that he even now bears, even after his resurrection, which speak of his suffering and becoming a servant, not only washing the feet, but even suffering thy uh, great wrath that he might pay the debt of our sin, our guilt, our condemnation. Lord, we praise thee. May we be those who do not cling to our rights, but are willing to lay aside our rights in order to wash the feet of one another and to serve one another. Father, we, we thank Thee and praise Thee for Thy truth. May Thy Spirit bless it to our understanding, to our growth in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.